let me give one quick announcement. The next Sunday is Gospel Community Sunday. We'll be watching episode seven of The Chosen, season one. And the, the important part of the announcement is we're going to have a waffle bar, Brenner, breakfast for dinner, and we want everybody to bring a waffle topping to share. So whatever it is that you like on your waffles, peanut butter, cheese, ketchup, I don't know, just bring that and we'll share it and then we'll, ha- we'll all see what weird food tastes we have. Um, if you'll grab your Bible and find First Peter chapter 4, we're going to conclude our series uh, on one another's. We'll be talking to, to this morning about serving one another. And while you're finding First Peter chapter 4, let me tell you a little story. Uh, early on in Canaanized marriage, first or second year, uh, newlyweds, we were, I was serving on staff as a worship pastor at Central Baptist Church in Springfield, Illinois, and that church did something called Financial Peace University. Anybody ever heard of Financial Peace University? So it's, uh, it's basically a 13-week class on how to manage your money well. It's taught by financial advisor uh, Dave Ramsey. I don't know if you've heard of him uh, or if you like him or not. I think he's a little obnoxious, but he's kind of funny sometimes. Um, But one of the things that he talks about uh, in this Financial Peace University class is he said, you don't have to guilt trip people into being generous. He said, most people want to be generous, but... A lot of us don't live in such a way that we can be generous. We don't live within our means. We don't manage our money well. We buy things on credit cards that we can't really afford. And we have all these bills and all these car payments and all this stuff. And that hinders our ability to be generous. So one of the, one of the things that he's hoping to accomplish in teaching this Financial Peace University class is he said, if when I teach people how to manage their money well and live within their means and save for the future... What we also see naturally is their generosity goes up because most people want to be generous. And so uh, I've always remembered that and I, I like that. And as we're preaching about serving one another today, I could come down and thump you on the head with my Bible and say, you ought to serve one another, selfish Americans, boom, boom. You know. But I like Dave Ramsey's approach. I think most of you want to serve. Your heart is to serve one another. The Holy Spirit lives in you. He is working in you to have a desire to serve one another. And what I would rather spend our time on this morning is talking about how. How can we get connected? How can we serve one another? How can we plug in and serve each other in that way? A little more practical. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. We'll ask three questions. What makes serving Christian? How does the Bible teach us to serve? And where can we start? But let's read the scripture first. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In this passage, the first question that I want to ask is, what makes serving Christian? What's the difference between Christian serving and volunteering for Habitat for Humanity or the American Red Cross or at a local food pantry? What is it specifically that makes serving a Christian act? Because the reality is, you don't have to be a Christian to volunteer with a humanitarian aid uh, organization and do a whole lot of really good things in the world. 
There are a lot of great organizations out there that are feeding the hungry and helping people get jobs and, and helping people uh, get rehabilitated so they can get back on their feet. And they're not Christian organizations. So what's the difference between Christians serving and people volunteering? And the really, the biggest difference comes from uh, verse 11 in that passage. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God that God supplies. And here's the difference. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The difference between Christian service and just being a good human volunteering is the motive. Christians volunteer for a different reason. We serve, we volunteer, uh, whether it's with inside the church or whether it's with the American Red Cross or whatever. Our heart is not virtue signaling. Our heart is not, uh, I want to feel good about myself or I want to be a good human and help somebody else in need. Our heart is primarily to bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. Now, we do that by helping those in need. Why? Because Jesus loves them and we love them. Well, we love them and we serve them, but we do it with the motive to glorify God in Christ. That's the difference between just plain old normal volunteering, which is a great thing to do, and volunteering or serving as a Christian. It's all in the motive. What is our motive? Our motive isn't to get our name or a picture in the paper or to have people say, great job volunteering today. Our motive is to glorify God in Christ. That's what makes serving particularly Christian in nature. Uh, The second question is, how does the Bible teach us to serve? Well, when the Bible says to serve each other or to serve one another, what does it mean? If you look back at 1 Peter 4.10, he writes, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. One thing I want to point out before we jump into this, he's particularly talking about serving one another in the church. So Christians can serve outside the church, and we absolutely should, but the focus of this passage is serving one another. He's writing to believers, and he's saying, as you're serving brothers and sisters in Christ, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. The question is, what does that mean? as each has received a gift, received a gift, the Bible teaches us to serve one another by using the gift that we have received. What does that mean? The English word gift, according to the New Oxford American Dictionary, the English word gift has two meanings. It means a thing given to someone without payment, a present, like a birthday present or a Christmas present, and it also means a natural ability or talent. So, uh, like good English speakers, when we are reading in our Bibles and we read something like 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Or we're reading in uh, uh, Romans 12 where it talks about various gifts that we have received and how to use them to serve one another. Or 1 Corinthians 12 where it talks about different spiritual gifts or gifts of the Spirit and how we can use them to serve one another. When we read those things, we naturally fill in the meaning based on the English word gift. And what we think is a spiritual gift is a special talent or ability that the Holy Spirit gave me when I got saved. Or maybe through some supernatural encounter with the Holy Spirit, I received a special ability. And now I can use that special ability to serve God's church. 
And if we're going to be obedient to what 1 Peter 4.10 teaches, then that's exactly how we're supposed to serve. We're supposed to figure out our special ability that we received as a present from the Holy Spirit and then use it to serve one another. But that idea presents a few problems. First of all, how do you figure out what your special ability is? And I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I did not get a letter in the mail a couple of days later from God saying, congratulations, welcome to the family, your special ability is fill in the blank. So how do we do that? What do we do? Well, well, we take a personality profile, we do the Enneagram, we do a, a, a gifts assessment test, and we try to figure out what our special ability is so that we can use it to serve one another. But do those things even work? I don't know. Here's another problem. What if you figured out your special ability, but it's not something your church needs, right? Uh, Eric Little was uh, a missionary to China. He was also an Olympic athlete, a runner. If you've ever seen Chariots of Fire, a movie made in 1981, which since I'm turning 40 in June, I will point out that that was before I was born. Thank you. Um, That was a joke, by the way. Uh, (coughs) Anyway, Eric Little was an Olympic athlete, a runner, and also a missionary to China. And there's this cool scene in the movie Chariots of Fire where he says, yes, I'm going to be a missionary to China, but God has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He was gifted as a runner. And when he ran, he could feel God smiling through him. He could feel the Holy Spirit's presence in him. And so uh, that's great. What if you, like Eric Little, have a special ability to run fast, but your church isn't entering any races? How do you do what 1 Peter 4.10 teaches? You can't. You can't use your gift to serve because your church doesn't need it. Or what if your church has needs, but they're not your special ability? Show of hands, is anybody's spiritual gift changing diapers? (laughs) I know yours is, Heather. That's, That's awesome. With the exception of Heather... Nobody's spiritual gift is changing diapers, right? However, we need people to work in the nursery to serve and change diapers. And and so what happens when you're gifted in a way that your church doesn't really need? I remember um, when I was at a previous church, the youth pastor there decided to teach the students about spiritual gifts. So he did a a several-week series on the spiritual gifts. And then at the end, he gave them this little test a little survey that they could fill out and find out their spiritual gifts. And so I had teenagers coming up to me saying, Pastor Andy, I want to serve in the church using my spiritual gift. And I said, great, what is your spiritual gift? Speaking in tongues. I thought, okay, have you ever spoken in tongues? No. Well, how do you know that's your spiritual gift? Because I took this test and it asked me, do you like learning foreign languages? And I said, I love Spanish as my favorite class. And it's like, great, your spiritual gift is speaking in tongues. Now, how can I use that gift here? And I said, well, we don't really have a volunteer spot for speaking in tongues in church. Um, however, we do need people to serve in the nursery. Oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I want to use my spiritual gift. See, the problem is that we take this idea of a special talent or ability that the Holy Spirit gave me on my spiritual birthday And then we say, I've got to figure out what that is, and I've got to find a way to use it. And there's all these other needs in the church, but they're not really my spiritual gift. And we're not serving one another. Now, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that God doesn't give people talents and abilities and experiences. 
that you can use to serve others. Some of you are really good at fixing things. Some of you have fixed things in my house. Uh, there was somebody in my, uh, fixed a broken light in my office just last week. Serving, right? Using a talent or a skill or an ability to serve somebody else. God does that. He has given you talents and abilities. But those talents and abilities aren't the meaning of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are not necessarily talents or abilities that you receive as a present from the Holy Spirit after you get saved. So then what is the word gift? If, if it's not a special talent or ability, what does it mean and how, and how do we understand it? Well, if you look back at 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, the Greek word, and I'm, we don't usually get into Greek, and I'm, we're going to do that a little bit today. I'm sorry about that. But the Greek word behind that is the word charisma. In the plural form, it's charismata, where we get the word charismatic from. In church world, the word charismatic refers to Christians who believe that things like speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy still happen in the church today. And it comes back from this word charisma. And most of the time in the New Testament, when you're reading about spiritual gifts, it is translating that word charisma as gift or spiritual gift. The problem is that while the English word gift means an ability or talent, the Greek word charisma doesn't mean either of those things. So what does it mean? Well, charisma is closely related to another word in this verse, and that's the last word, grace. So if you're reading this, in, you're putting in the Greek words, as each has received a charisma, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied charis. So we have God's grace, charis, and then we have charisma. Charis means grace, and charisma means a concrete expression of grace. That's what the word gift means in the spiritual gift passages. It doesn't mean a special ability that you received as a present on your spiritual birthday. It means a concrete expression of God's grace. That's what a charisma is. Now, if you were going to put this in 1 Peter 4.10, with all of that, you'll see why we chose the word gift to translate that. Because a concrete expression of grace is rather clunky. <laughs> As each has received a concrete expression of grace, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. There is no direct English translation of the word charisma. It means a concrete expression of grace. The reason why we translate it as gift is because God's grace in all of its forms is always freely given. So it makes sense to understand it as a gift from God, but it doesn't mean this special ability that I have to figure out in order to serve. The question that we're wrestling with in this part of the message is how does the Bible teach us to serve? And the answer is the Bible teaches us to serve with charisma, concrete expressions of God's grace to one another. Now, once we understand the word charisma or spiritual gift in that way, as a concrete expression of God's grace, it changes the entire conversation. It's no longer about what's your personality profile, uh, what are your natural aptitudes and talents and abilities, and how can you uh, figure out your spiritual gifts assessment. 
Now it's about how can I become a concrete expression of God's grace to another person? How can I take God's invisible grace and make it visible in the life of somebody else? How can I take the concept of Jesus' love and mercy and make them real and tangible and seen and experienced in the lives of others? How can I be the hands and feet of Jesus? to this person because Jesus is not here physically. So I am his representative. It's all about the concrete expression of God's grace to one another. The Bible gives several examples of what this looks like. In 1 Peter 4, where we've been looking, verses 11, uh, verse 11, he, he gives two examples. As one who speaks the very words of God and uh, as one who serves one another. Speaking God's words to others and serving one another is an example of a concrete expression of his grace. A couple of verses earlier in 1 Peter 4, verses 8 and 9, he says he talks about loving one another and showing hospitality to one another. Those are charismata, expressions of God's grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul gives a whole list of various charismata, Uh, And I'll just give you a few of them. Speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, wisdom, healing, and prophecy. And he goes on to talk about more. But those are examples of how God concretely expresses his grace through the lives of his people. In Romans chapter 12, there are even more uh, examples. Teaching, encouraging, giving generously, doing acts of mercy. All of these things are concrete expressions of God's grace. Those are lists that are in the Bible, and the Bible gives examples. They're not comprehensive. There are many more expressions of grace that that aren't recorded in Scripture. For example, I mentioned it earlier. Nobody probably says, before I was a Christian, I could not change a diaper to save my life. But then I got saved, and now I am the world's best diaper changer. I could change a diaper faster than you can say, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, bam, he's clean. Because I have the spiritual gift, changing diapers, right? Aside from Heather, nobody can say that, right? But changing diapers absolutely is a concrete expression of God's grace through you. A parent cleaning up puke from their kid is a concrete expression of God's grace through them. Doing uh, crafts with preschoolers in the Lakeview Kids pre-K class probably isn't a supernatural ability that you received in some encounter with God, but it is definitely an expression of God's grace through you. Running sound or flipping slides probably isn't a talent that, you, that God downloaded into your brain when you got saved, but it is an expression of God's grace when you serve in such a way that lets your brothers and sisters worship God together. Hanging out with teenagers in our church family and building relationships with them so that they can see what it looks like for an adult to follow Christ probably isn't a special ability, but it is a concrete expression of God's grace through you. Even something simple like changing a broken electrical outlet for a widow probably isn't a special talent that the Holy Spirit gave you, but it is a concrete expression of God's grace and it is an honor to serve and show his love in that way. That's how the Bible teaches us to serve, with charisma, with concrete expressions of God's grace to one another. So how do we start? Where do we begin? We want to get into this. The the first step in starting is this. See See a need, meet a need. 
Don't go and take some personality profile or some spiritual gifts test so you can figure out your special ability. If you want to become a concrete expression of God's grace to others, when you see a need, step out and meet that need. Uh, If you see somebody who's sick, go pray for them. God might express his grace through you by healing them. I prayed for people before and they've been healed. I prayed for a lot of people and they haven't been healed. Sometimes God works his grace through in that way. If you see somebody who's upset or who's struggling or you have a a brother or sister or know somebody who is really in a difficult place in life, go and offer to pray with them. God might put a thought or a word or a phrase or a picture in your mind that you can share that will greatly and, and, and wonderfully encourage them. That's an expression of his grace through you. Uh, when your neighbor or somebody else in the church who is physically unable to do yard work or rake their leaves, when you see that need and you step up to meet that need, raking leaves becomes a spiritual gift, a charisma, an expression of God's grace. When you bring a meal to a family that just had a baby, you are expressing God's grace. You're making his invisible love visible in that family's life. If you want God to begin to work his grace through you in all those ways, you need to step, just step in and start meeting those needs. Second thing, how do we start? Prepare to be inconvenienced. Serving is not about convenience We live in a convenient society. We worship God when it's convenient. We serve or volunteer when it's convenient. We do everything when it's convenient. But if we have a servant's heart, it's not convenient. Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 17 about a a servant that worked in the field all day. And then the master comes home and calls the servant in. But Jesus said, the master doesn't say, hey, you've worked in the field all day. Why don't you sit down here? Here's a glass of cold water. Let me go fix something for you to eat. Jesus said, no, the master doesn't say that. The master said, you've been working in the field all day. I just got home and I'm hungry. So now I want you to go work in the kitchen and I expect dinner on the table in an hour. Thanks. Right? Not very convenient. It's not very easy. It's hard work. But that's what being a servant is all about. The third step to getting started is be willing to serve in menial ways, insignificant, unseen, lowly, and humble ways. In John chapter 13, Jesus, the king of the universe, stooped down and took the dirty, stinky, nasty feet of his disciples and washed them. The king, the king did that, right? So in God's kingdom, serving in lowly, humble, menial ways is actually kingly and royal. But in our kingdom, serving, being a servant is looked down upon. It's humiliating. But in God's kingdom, being a servant and serving in humble, unnoticed ways is royal and kingly like Jesus, right? So if we want to get started serving, if you see a need, meet it. Prepare to be inconvenienced and be willing to serve in unnoticed, insignificant, menial ways. Now I'm going to close by this and I have Jesse come up. We're going to sing in just a minute. Um, there in, in the seat pocket somewhere near you is a little half sheet that says ways to serve at Lakeview. Uh, if, if you can't find one, there's a few more out at the Welcome Center. Um, I would love if you would just put your contact information on there and then fill that out uh, with anything that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind. These are current needs in your church family. Um, that top part, uh, volunteer lists, that's not making a weekly commitment for the next five years. Occasional needs arise. Somebody has a baby, somebody gets sick, somebody needs help with their house. If you're somebody that would like to help two or three times a year with needs like that. We just need a list. 
when a widow needs an outlet fixed, who do we call? Well, if that's something you can do, put your name on that. And two or three times a year when that need arises, we might call you, right? So these are just some ways that you can serve at Lakeview Church. I'd love if you would fill that out while Jesse sings, and then after the service, drop it in the offering box on your way out. Um, Yeah, I'm going to turn it over to Jesse. Thanks, Jesse. Morning. My name is Gary. I'm one of the overseers here. And uh, I have the privilege to talk about two practices that are essential uh, for the disciple of Jesus Christ. Those two are confession and repentance. And I think Andy actually chose this for me because I'm the one who gets to practice it the most. Before we uh, move forward and take a look at Scripture Let's sort of define our terms. What would the New Testament believers understand, folks in Jesus' day, about these two terms, confession and repentance? The term confess in the original Greek really means to speak the same thing. Or they would understand it to mean to profess or to proclaim or declare or agree. So when we confess our sins, what we're really doing is agreeing that we've fallen short. That's how people in Jesus' day would have understood that idea of confession. The idea of repent, the word again is a, is a combination of two words that really mean to perceive afterwards. You, really, to think differently, to change your mind, uh, to reconsider something. The idea of this word, um, metanoio, really has the idea that I, I was thinking something one way, and then somebody came along and shared with me, and oh my goodness, I, that's not the way at all. It, it, I need to rethink myself, what, what's going on. That's the idea of repentance. Repentance means to change. It means to change your attitude, change your opinion, change your direction, change your thoughts in the military we have a really interesting term for this, about face. That's what the term repent means. For those who have yet to follow Jesus Christ, confession and repentance establishes a relationship with God. Those who have yet to follow Christ are separated from from God's blessings. Their sins separate them. And coming to God in confession and repentance establishes a new and eternal relationship with God. In Romans 10, Paul writes, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here, confession is declaring that Jesus is Lord, that he is the ruler of all things. And confessing that God raised him from the dead and that our sins put him there. The first thing that Jesus is recorded as saying in the book of Mark is this. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus was walking in Judah and Jerusalem 
Samaria, the Jews and the people that were living there had a different view of what it meant to follow God. What it meant to, what the Messiah was about. And Jesus said, you need to rethink that. You need to change the way you're thinking. And Paul writes in Corinthians, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Confessing our sins, recognizing that Jesus is Lord, rethinking that our lives have been on the wrong path leads to sorrow, grief, a recognition that we are on the wrong path. And that, that grief, that sorrow, leads to repentance. And that repentance leads to life. So for those who have yet to follow Jesus Christ, confession and repentance is the gateway through which we receive forgiveness from God. But that's not the only time and the only way and the only reason why we should be confessing and repentance. For believers in Jesus Christ, confession and repentance restores our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. There's a great verse in 1 John that I'd like to have us look at. If we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's really powerful about this passage, I think, are there are a variety of things that are really powerful, but two things I think that are really, really powerful is one, the first part in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we lie. Apparently in John's day, there were folks who were walking around saying, I have got it. I am it. Here, here's my, you know, here it is. Go to my website. I'm the one. All of us fall short. We're on a path to walk with God, and often on that path we wander. And John is telling us here, denying that is a lie. But then it says, if we confess our sins, the sins that God has raised to our mind, the things that God is working with us right now with, if we confess those, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of what? All unrighteousness. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has a dream in chapter 6 where he is right in the throne room of God and if you remember that passage, the thing that happened to Isaiah is he was undone. He felt he was going to be destroyed because he was in the presence of a holy God and he was not. A man of unclean lips is what he said. If God were to reveal to me all the sin I have in my life, I'm sure I would explode. But God doesn't do that. In his grace, God does not show us all of our failings. Were he to do so, we would be destroyed. No, he shows us one, two things, six, seven, eight, but um, one thing, two things that we need to work on. And then when we ask for forgiveness, he wipes the slate clean. That's amazing. In Revelation 2.5, Jesus is talking to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus 
really um, was strong in their doctrine. They really cared a lot about the words of Christ and wanted to make sure that everybody that was going to speak and talk and work there just made sure that they followed the words of God. But they had a problem. They were really more concerned about the doctrine of Christ than they were about knowing Christ. They were more concerned that people followed the rules and instead of loving them. And Jesus said this, Remember, therefore, for from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove a lampstand from, your, from its place unless you repent. Here the idea of repentance, this is talking to a church, not to an individual, but the idea is repentance, changing your mind, really moving the way you think leads to action. It means you do something. In Matthew, those, that's about our relationship with God. We need, our sin separates us from God and confession and repentance restores us to God and that relationship. But also, sometimes we offend our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a great verse in Matthew I want to share with you. It says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and, they, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. But let's take a moment to think about this. Before we worship God, if there is something our brother has against us, we need to get that dealt with. In the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive our sins as we forgive others. The idea that, that a reconciliation between those who know Christ, those who know each other, is really critical. Confessing how we've offended folks. It's something God expects us. It's not optional. Another passage in Luke 17 says, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns around seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is an interaction that we do as believers in Jesus Christ. A disciple is involved in confession and repentance and forgiveness. It's a cycle that God expects us to be involved in. It's really, really critically important. But that idea of repent, I don't know about you, but changing my mind, it's not easy. The next verse really, uh, Paul sort of shares with us this idea of what we can do to change our minds. He says, do not be conformed any longer by the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here in this passage, Paul is talking about the word of God. The word of God transforms us. Do you remember Psalm 1? Blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law. They meditate day and night. God's law is a way that we transform our minds. And then finally in John, I'm sorry, in James 15, 5, um, James writes, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. This is one of those al And you will be healed. 
God recognizes that, yes, we are faulty, but we need each other. We need each, we need each other to share our struggles and our sins, and we need each other to be healed, each other to be healed. So as disciples of Christ, as those who follow Jesus, we should really recognize that we are on a path to be like Jesus, but on that path we often wander off and distance ourselves from God. God isn't moving away from us. We are moving away from him. Confession and repentance are practices that place us back into the relationship with God and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Disciples of Christ make frequent, a frequent habit of confession and repentance. And I'm reminded in, in the um, uh, Removing High Places book, at the end, there's a, a thing before you go to bed that Andy wrote about us reflecting on, and one of those is confessing our sins. Disciples of Christ support each other in their struggles with sin. This, we're not to be alone. This is not the rugged individualist faith. We need each other. And we need each other to help us through our struggles. So I have some application questions for us. Do you keep short accounts with God and with others? Is there something you need to change in your thinking? Is there something you need to repent of? Is there someone you need to ask forgiveness of? And do you have a person who you feel safe with that you can share your struggles, your sins, and who can pray for you? Let me close with a great quote from an old saint um, that I really enjoy. His name is Thomas Akempis, and he wrote the book, The Imitation of Christ. He said, I will bring witness against myself to my injustice and to you, O Lord. I will confess my weakness. We are flawed people that God has redeemed. We are moving on a path to be more like Christ, but we wander. But God has given us a blessed way, a practice of confession and repentance to come back on that pathway to be like Jesus. I'd like to close with a, a, a scene from the Chosen miniseries that we're going to be seeing next, next week. It's in the second season. Um, let me leave you with this scene because I think it shows a marvelous depiction of what I've just been talking about and probably in three minutes can say everything I've said much better. Let me give you the background. Um, the Chosen isn't the Bible. It's a dramatic character-based depiction of Jesus' life and ministry. It's based on the Bible, but to fill out the characters the writers and directors have added things that they view as plausible and they have a whole series of folks that they send these ideas through. This scene that we're going to see is not in the Bible. But I believe it wonderfully shows what I've just been talking about. In the scene, Mary Magdalene enters the tent where Jesus is staying with Jesus' mother, Mary. Through a series of circumstances, Mary Magdalene left the path of following Jesus, and this is a scene showing her coming back. Let's take a look at it. <laughs> 